Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we have the honor of hosting a panel discussion on uh, the confirmation hearing of Amy Coney Barrett. Um, uh, this class is the political and constitutional theory course here at Notre Dame, and um, we're honored to, to have the panel here. Uh, the event is brought to you by the Constitutional Studies Program and the Tocqueville Program here at Notre Dame. Our first panelist is uh, Professor Rick Garnett. He is Paul uh, J. Shrill Fort Howard Corporation Professor of Law at Notre Dame's Law School and the Director of the Program of Church, State, and Society. Professor Garnett teaches and writes about the freedom of speech, association, and religion in constitutional law more generally. He is a leading authority on questions and debates regarding uh, the role of religious believers and beliefs in politics and society. Our next panelist is Joe, uh, Senator Joe Donnelly, who served the state of Indiana in the Senate from 2013 to 2019. He is a double domer, uh, having earned both his bachelor's and law degrees from Our Lady's University. While serving in Congress, Donnelly was one of the three Democrats to vote to confirm President Trump's first Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, and the second Democrat to announce that he would meet with Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's second Supreme Court nominee. He ultimately voted against confirm confirming Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. We hope Senator Donnelly can bring his practical experience in Washington to our discussion today. Our third panelist, Professor Christina Bambrick, is an associate professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. She studies constitutional theory as well as the history of American political thought. Uh, Current research, research studies shifting so uh, understandings of public and private comparative constitutionalism, especially how courts understand and interpret the Constitution. Our, moder mo our moderator today is Professor Vincent Mun Philip Munoz, the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life and director of the Constitutional Studies Program. His research encompasses the American founding, church state jurisprudence, and constitutional law. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Uh, thank you, Professor Rodriguez. On behalf of the Constitutional Studies Program, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you to the students here for sharing uh, your class time with us. Um, the order of uh, our presentation will be uh, Professor Garnett, and then Professor Bambrick, and then Professor Donnelly, we've asked each panelist just to share a few remarks uh, about their perspectives of the nomination and, and confirmation battle. And then we'll have a discussion among the panelists and then questions from the students here uh, attending and for those of you online. I, I believe those zooming in, if you use the raise hand function, we'll try to get a couple online questions as well. So, uh, Professor Garnett. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Philip, and thanks for letting us uh, crash in your class. I do want to say just at the outset what a what a treat it is to be with Senator Donnelly here at this event. It's a little intimidating since um, there's one person on the stage who actually knows how the Senate works. <laughs> it's uh, it's not me. Um, it's but, not uh, me either. <laughs> but as a uh, 22 year resident of uh, South Bend, I was I was honored to be represented by uh, Senator Donnelly both in the House and in the Senate, and I really admire his record of conscientious and, uh, and independent service uh, in the Congress. I should also say it's, it's a treat for me to be able to talk about Judge Barrett. I've, I've known her for 23 years. Um, 
uh, we became friends when we were all young lawyers. Um, believe it or not, there was a time when I was young and I actually used to be a real lawyer. So um, uh, I've, I've known her for a long time. I'm familiar with her legal scholarship and her record on the bench. And more importantly, I'm just closely familiar with her, um, her, her teaching at the law school, her collegiality at the law school, and to go even deeper, I suppose, just as a friend and a, and a neighbor, uh, I know her, her character quite well. So just so my cards are on the table, I don't, I don't have any doubt um, about her qualifications or her judicial temperament, uh, her suitability mm -hmm. to do the work uh, of a justice on the Supreme Court. I think it's pretty clear that if she were confirmed, uh, she would serve honorably um, and in good faith. And I think the same is true, by the way, uh, of Judge Merrick Garland, who was nominated by President Obama in 2016. I, I didn't know Judge Garland except by reputation, but it's quite clear that he was an outstanding jurist and would have served well uh, had he been confirmed. And then finally, just as I have no doubt about the qualifications and judicial talents of Amy Barrett, I'm sure that um, I don't have any doubt, and you probably don't either, about the gifts and legacy of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I do wanna leave time for questions, so just a few quick thoughts. Um, for what they're worth. First, uh, I think it's really clear that the president, whatever one thinks of him, has the power under the Constitution to nominate people to fill vacancies on the Supreme Court that arise during his term. And that the term won't end um, at the earliest until uh, January 20th, 2001. And it was similarly true that President Obama had the power uh, to nominate somebody to fill the vacancy that was created by Justice Scalia's death. Um, this was true then, it's true now with respect to Judge Barrett, and it's true regardless of the fact uh, that it's an election year. It's also clear to me anyway that the Senate majority now has the power under the Constitution to confirm or to reject nominees to the court uh, regardless of when those vacancies are created and regardless, again, despite what Senator McConnell might have said last time around, regardless of whether it's an election year. So the power question, it seems to me, is, is, is quite clear. Now, I believe that Judge Barrett uh, should be confirmed. Again, as I said, I think she's an outstanding nominee. And also, just to be candid, I, I tend to share her view about how to interpret the Constitution and how to interpret statutes. And I tend to share her view of the judicial role. I, I expect that senators who don't share her approach or her understanding of the judicial role will vote against her. Uh, there was a time when senators voted regularly to confirm qualified nominees regardless of party. Uh, Senator Donnelly carried on that tradition, but generally speaking, that's, that's not the days uh, we live in anymore, uh, unfortunately, in my view. And I feel pretty sure that if, if right now the Democrats have a majority in the Senate, um, they would reject Judge Barrett's nomination, although some might well vote, vote for her, uh, just as the Republicans, in effect, rejected Judge Garland's. Um, it is true that Judge Barrett's nomination comes quite close uh, to election day, um, but her confirmation process, if it proceeds according to the current schedule, would end up being about the same length as the process for Justice Ginsburg, which is about 40 days. But here's a bigger point for what it's worth. Um, I think Supreme Court vacancies and the Supreme Court should not matter so much. Uh, the court was not supposed to matter so much. It was the least dangerous branch. 
Uh, one of the early chief justices of the Supreme Court got so bored that he quit and went back to South Carolina so that he could be a trial judge. Um, it wasn't supposed to be the case that the Supreme Court adjudicated uh, culture war hot button, hot button questions about, about morality, that the Supreme Court was the final arbiter of every cost benefit uh, decision. So in my view, it shouldn't matter when an 80-year-old jurist like Anthony Kennedy decides to retire. It shouldn't matter so much that other octogenarians like Justices Scalia and Ginsburg happen to pass away while in office, while the other party, quote unquote, is in power. I don't think it should be the case that judges are riskily calculating and planning their retirements or betting on their longevity in order to be sure that their team gets to pick the successor. Now we can argue and disagree about how we came to this situation. I think it's a long and complicated story. It goes back for decades. And if you want to, we can talk about that in, in Q&A. But I'd like to just suggest before I um, shut up for now that something we should think creatively about ways to change this current dynamic where again, so much seems to depend on the timing of the passing away of a particular judge. The uh, Economist had a story in the latest issue called Less Notorious, uh, making a reference to uh, Justice Ginsburg's nickname, Notorious RBG. The point was that it ought to be the case that our justices aren't crucial celebrities, and it ought to be the case that not so much depends on uh, the politics of a confirmation hearing. So what are some options? We could limit the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in various ways. We could create fixed terms for justices. Some have suggested sort of rotating 18-year terms where every two years there would be a new judge, which would suggest that every administration would get uh, at least two nominations. Um, with all due respect to my elders, I think it's entirely appropriate to think about having mandatory age retirements for um, Supreme Court justices. Um, some of these proposals would obviously require constitutional changes, as I'm sure you know, but some would not. Uh, there's a lot of creative thinkers on both the political right and the political left who suggested ways that you could like rotate justices off of the Supreme Court onto the courts of appeal. The Constitution might well still allow that. So I'd encourage you and all of us maybe to brainstorm a bit about how we could kind of improve the climate of the discussions around nominees. My own view is that some of the court packing solutions we've heard some political leaders float is likely to make things worse rather than better, but I, I suspect that debate will continue. And of course, a lot of political operatives and a lot of people who like to raise money in politics have a stake in making us all kind of lose our minds every time there's a nomination because um, it tends to raise the heat, which tends to bring in the uh, contributions. But in any event, I hope that regardless of uh, all of this, um, and regardless of whether one supports her nomination or not, that Judge Barrett and her actual record, um, not the Twitter created record, but her actual record uh, will be treated uh, accurately and fairly. Uh, thanks. Thank you, Professor Garnett. Uh, Professor Bamberg. Well, thank you to the Tom Studies program for putting it together so quickly and for Senator Donnelly today, let's join us. I'll speak a bit about um, Judge Barrett's judicial interpretive philosophy to begin and then speak a little bit more of what I've read about her character, although I, didn't, I don't know her as Professor Barnett does. So. But I'll begin by um, 
reflecting on an adjective that I've seen people use repeatedly to describe her, and that is humility. I think that they are normally speaking of her personal character when they say that, but I think it's also an apt descriptor of what she aspires to with her judicial philosophy. So you've likely heard about Judge Barrett's um, originalism and her textualism. These aren't exactly the same thing, but they're often closely linked. Uh, so originalism, you may know, is the idea that judges ought to understand the Constitution in the light of the language's original meaning. One of the critiques of this philosophy is also what proponents cite as one of its purposes, and that is that it does in fact contain to those original meanings. The idea being that those were the words that were agreed to and to which government ought to be held even today, um, at least short of a constitutional amendment. So this is a matter of democratic legitimacy that the government ought to be held accountable to the fundamental law as it was actually adopted. Now, textualism, Judge Barrett's textualism, and in general, is the idea that judges ought to ought to read the text as it is written. Um, so, can you actually read that one? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, thank you. So, um, textualism, the idea that judges ought to read the text as it is written. This is different from literalism um, in that literalism goes to extremes to interpret words literally rather than say in their plain meaning as they're typically understood according to the conventions of language. Um, so literalism doesn't make space for these sorts of considerations that textualism does. Okay, so why do I bring up humility in, in speaking about these interpretive philosophies? Um, originalism, textualism, they're not without critics. But they do aspire to a kind of rootedness, even if imperfectly, that other approaches to judging have difficulty establishing in the same way. So I imagine Judge Barrett would agree that no interpretive approach is perfect, but I do get the impression that her originalism and textualism are grounded in this kind of humility about her role as a judge, um, echoing some of Professor Garnett's comments that the court wasn't meant to do all that it is doing today. Um, there's a particular judicial self-understanding of the limits of the role that I think we can find in Judge Barrett's philosophy of interpretation. And so you might contrast this with one of her predecessors on the Seventh Circuit Court, um, Judge Richard Posner's pragmatism that doesn't make, that doesn't pretend to be about anything but outcomes, for example. Um, and so this rootedness of originalism, Judge Barrett's originalism, offers us a standard against which to judge the judges, a standard against which to judge Judge Barrett herself. In other words, if you think, if the Senate Judiciary Committee thinks that she's judging improperly, um, not judging well, then they know the standard that she is employing, that she is using, and so they can say exactly how she, is, she could be um, a better judge. Um, in other words, you know the terms on which to argue. And in theory, this could lead to better argumentation, this kind of transparency, in theory. We'll see how the, the confirmation hearings actually proceed, but I think that this um, does um, give Judge Barrett um, some transparency in how she thinks of herself as a judge. Um, so again, I don't know Judge Barrett, um, but it does seem that there's a kind of mutual respect between her and between others that think differently um, than she does. So for example, in her first confirmation hearings when she was being considered for the appellate court, um, she praises Justice Kagan in her exchange with the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. She explicitly 
says how she admires Justice Kagan, much like her mentor Scalia praised Justice Kagan as well um, as a worthy interlocutor. Um, also, there are liberal professors here at Notre Dame. Um, there's a well-known professor at Harvard, Noah Feldman, who have um, spoken well of Judge Barrett and how she, she would be a good justice on the Supreme Court. And moreover, she did receive bipartisan support when she was being considered for the appellate role um, as appellate judge, um, a few Democrats crossed party lines. So this is not an easy feat in our time, and it can't be taken for granted even now. Um, obviously, this next confirmation will look very different. She's being considered for the highest court in the land. And I think even the, the few years difference has um, shown us we're living in a time of real political hardball in a way that we maybe weren't a few years ago even. Um, so these, this crossing of party lines, this um, mutual respect that I'm talking about, I think points to a dual understanding of what the court is, what the confirmation hearing is supposed to be about at all. Um, the court as political, the court as a legal institution. So as jaded as we all may be at this stage, um, that judges are simply legislators in robes, um, as much as we political scientists like to talk about policy preferences, the strategy of judges on the court, justices on the court, um, the fact is we do still occasionally see this crossover. We still do see people who think differently um, able to assess judges like Amy Barrett on her own terms. Um, so to, to echo Professor Garnett, part of the problem for the over-politicization of the court has to do with these big political questions that they are considering today. And honestly, as long as they do consider these culture war issues, I, I don't know that the court can escape this um, image as a political institution. Um, and we see this still come out in the way that the news has covered Judge Barrett's um, background in certain ways. So for example, you've probably seen her religion emphasized quite a bit um, in the news. And implicitly, this seems to suggest that this isn't only about the law, but this is about some sort of um, external consideration, her, her policy preferences may be rooted in her religion. So at least in this case, the, the implicit suggestion is that her religion seems to matter to her ability to carry out her role as a judge. Um, so Judge Barrett has responded to this criticism, this, this critique, um, here, in fact, at Notre Dame, in some remarks that she gave a few years back, which is to say that anyone has moral presuppositions that they bring with them. Everyone has a worldview that they bring to questions that they consider, but that the role of the judge would be to bracket these. Um, and she, she has said that she has done that and, and continues to do that in her role as a judge. Some may be skeptical. Um, but regardless, this is the only answer you can expect to, to get from Judge Barrett. She, of course, is operating in a legal framework and so won't let herself talk about anything but the law. Um, but I think given that she's not only served in the capacity as judge, but also a law professor, um, there is a role for one's Catholicism, Judge Barrett's Catholicism, in thinking through these legal issues. Again, external to the system of law rather than internal. And that would be that, um, her, in her case, her Catholicism allows her to be critical of the, the legal system. People talk about the need for reform in the justice system. Well, any 
framework that a person can bring to bear allows us to see exactly how that reform can happen. So this is not to say that she'll bring this to bear in her role as a judge, but as a law professor, um, this is something that has been important. And um, I think that she is in, in saying that she would bracket these in her judging. Um, we have, um, uh, we, we see that her, her judicial self-understanding is about the constraints that, that courts and, and judges have. So we'll have to see how all this plays out, but um, I think that we have um, a lot to be proud of as a university to see how she does in um, whatever role she finds herself. Thank you, Professor Banker. Uh, Senator Dahl. Thank you, and it's great to be with all of you. Um, Professor Christie, Professor Gardner, thanks to the whole video team. Thank you very much. Um, it is a, it's a great privilege to be with you. Um, suffice it to say that when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I never, I never dreamed of being in the House of Representatives or being a United States Senator. I actually hoped I would find a job, um, <laughs> <laughs> and a job that could actually pay for a car that I ran. And so, um, to be with you is is the greatest that um, I look in. This this was my life. I grew up uh, on Long Island in New York. Um, had actually never, till I came to Notre Dame on my first day, had ever been west of the Poconos in my entire life, and so. And I thought that was like going to the Soviet Union or something <laughs> far away. But being in the Senate and being in the House taught me, um, as Professor Garnett said, my job was to represent all of you, to try to do So much has become so political. I, I um, am a Democrat, but you serve as an American. And that your signature shouldn't just be, well, my party says this or my party says that. Your signature should be, did I make the lives of the people of our community better and stronger? And one of the, one of the great challenges of the Senate job is the Supreme Court nominations and, and what has become the nomination process. In the whole court process, um, you know, I, I became senator in 2013, and the Seventh Circuit seat that uh, Judge Barrett serves in now, and, and who I voted for for that job, um, was actually open before Judge Barrett for almost three years. I don't remember the exact time. And I nominated a candidate well, I should say I recommended a nominee to President Obama. Um, she, her name is Myra Selby, former Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court, who had retired from the Indiana Supreme Court. Um, extraordinary jurist and sat for two and a half years maybe and couldn't even get a meeting from any of the Republicans in the United States Senate for that position. There was a process called the blue slate at that time. And that was as Professor Garnett, things change and 
we had this process that really worked well and it, it, it tended to bring jurists as opposed to being from one spectrum or the other more toward the middle because you had to agree. And that was the two senators would give the blue slip to, um, to the president's office or, or to, the, to the Senate and to the president's office to tell them, look, we've agreed this is a candidate we can agree on. Doesn't necessarily mean I'll vote for him, but there's somebody who we think would serve the nation well. Um, and for my nominee, who was a past justice of the Indiana Supreme Court, we're all in Indiana. We know Indiana is not the most liberal state in the United States, right? If you serve on the Indiana Supreme Court, you're probably somewhere close to the middle. Um, and I could never get a blue slip from the Republican senator, who's an, who, is, who is and was an extraordinary person. And I said, what is her flaw? And the flaw was they were never going to give her a vote because they wanted that seat to stay open till the 2016 election. And President Obama was hoping that the blue slip process would be followed. And it was not. And so a seat that should have been filled years before remained open when um, President Trump won the election. And obviously President Trump isn't going to nominate Meyer Selby. Um, the nominee was then Amy Barrett, Professor Amy Barrett, who I met with, who I signed a blue slip. People said, how can you sign a blue slip after they've stiffed you for years? after they perverted the whole process. I'm trying to tell you or give you a, a taste of this process that's so broken right now, that how can you do that? And I said, because that's my job. I'm supposed to either say I won't because she doesn't have the qualifications or I will because she deserves a vote. And I met with um, then Professor Barrett, uh, now Judge Barrett on a Sunday morning because she was so busy and I was so busy. We were trying to meet back here in South Bend, but uh, it became difficult. Um, we went out and got muffins and coffee. And Judge Barrett came in and said, you, you got us muffins. I was like, yes, they're good muffins. <laughs> and we met with her, um, my legal aide, and myself, my, my uh, counsel, had a great meeting. Um, shortly thereafter, signed off on the blue slip, and we had a vote. I think, Rick, it was like 55-43, something like that. So she got, you know, two, three, four Democrats. I was, I was one of them. And folks came up and said, boy, what a, you know, how could you just roll over like I said, it didn't roll over, I did my job. What was done before was wrong. Hopefully we can change that going into the future. And so um, the court has become so weaponized, it is used as a political instrument at almost every turn. In 2018, um, Justice Kennedy decides to announce his retirement like about a month and a half before the election. 
And there's this, um, as the life of a senator, you serve in many areas. I served in the Armed Services Committee, served on the Banking Committee, and part of it is being from Indiana. I served in the Agriculture Committee, which I love, and it was so much fun. So I was doing an interview with the agricultural TV stations around the state. You know, they, they all have agriculture reports because it's so important. And we just about finished the interview. And last question on like corn prices came up. And I said, well, thanks very much for being here with me. I sure appreciate it. And they said, give time for one more question. I said, sure, what is it? And they said, how do you feel about the announcement Justice Kennedy made five minutes ago that he's retiring? And it was like, that was the thud of my head hitting the table because I knew what was coming. I knew that would be the entire election. Um, the entire election, and I knew how challenging the hearings would be and all of those things. Um, and so to give you an idea of how important these are politically, so the day, the day before that, and, and I voted for Justice Gorsuch too, and I was actually going to vote for Justice Kavanaugh, but I saw some things that I felt I couldn't vote for him after a certain point. But the day before the hearing started, um, I was 10 points ahead in the Senate race. The day the hearings ended, so what, about a three week period, something like that, Professor? I was seven points behind in, in a 17 point swing. And, and so in states where it's all one way or the other, it doesn't matter that much. But in states where um, it does, it's, it's really important. And I guess I apologize, this isn't directly on Judge, Judge Barrett, but to tell you the, the flavor of how important this process is. And, and my, my no vote for Kavanaugh really wouldn't have changed those numbers that much because what happens is it becomes such a red hot event that instead of the election being about Senator Joe, it becomes about the Democrat versus the Republican and everybody goes to their corners. And so you get basically a straight up view of what the state's Democrat versus Republican is. Judge Barrett is a, um, is, is a terrific person. Is, um, you know, if you have, have a model family person, um, Judge Barrett is that person. Um, as I said, I voted for her for confirmation um, in her circuit, uh, circuit court vote that we had. The, the, the process regarding Merrick Garland was never about Merrick Garland. Okay, it was Mitch McConnell. I'll put my glasses on for a second. Um, Mitch McConnell said in February, nine months before the election, given that we are in, the, and I didn't need glasses when I was an undergrad, so. <laughs> given that we are in the midst of the presidential election process, we believe the American people should seize the opportunity to weigh in on whom they trust to nominate the next person for a lifetime appointment for the Supreme Court. So. He, he never had a vote before the election. Um, and those wounds don't heal. You know, when you sit there and basically um, you're being played on a constant basis, it is, it is hard to just go, oh, never mind. Um, we'll just do what you want. And so this, this first process before the election, um, where Judge Barrett is the nominee, these hearings, um, this is not going to be 
a reflection, I think, on, on Judge Barrett's, on, just on Judge Barrett's views on issues or on her demeanor or on whether or not she has exhibited partisanship, which I don't think I've ever seen her do at any time. Um, this is going to be about senators who have tried in good faith to follow the process, who have um, found in effect what they feel was one set of rules at one point, and now you want me to play by another set of rules now. Professor Garnett's right. Legally, the president has the right to do this. And legally, the Senate has the right to take a vote now. But in 2016, legally, President Obama had a right to nominate somebody, and he did, Merrick Garland. And the Senate had a right and a duty to take a vote. And I had lunch with Professor Ortiz, and one of the points he made to me was, um, you know, we were talking about it, and we talked about how if you don't want Merrick Garland, then have a vote. That if you don't want him, just vote no. But they didn't have the courage to vote no. They just never even put him on the floor because they were afraid that American people would find out what a great person he was. So um, in regards to Judge Barrett, this first round, I think, will have nothing to do, I shouldn't say nothing to do, but is, is basically about a feeling that the process has been has been gamed and has been so broken. And so um, you've even heard some of the most conservative Democrat senators say, look, Judge Barrett, uh, or I, I, I don't remember all the current comments on Judge Barrett, but I know mine, which is that she's a, she's a terrific person. I don't agree with her on a lot of things legally, um, but as a person, as all of those things, she's great. But they feel that we shouldn't be in a position to be voting before this election because in 2016 you told us that was how the rules were and you're the same exact people who uh who told us one thing then and another thing now thank you uh, professor donnelly um I, I want to encourage as many questions as possible from the from the students here uh, attending in person um Will we have the students come up here? Is that... Okay, uh, you, can, you can do so while maintaining social distancing. So please come on up and, um, yeah, and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, while we wait for the student to come to the front of the room, um, Senator Donnelly, can I ask one question of you and, uh, and invite the professors to comment as well? Um, if uh, you talked about the Senate needed to do its job, does, if, if the uh, Democrats don't uh, participate in this uh, process or uh, say the process itself is uh, illegitimate today, does that implicitly concede that Mitch McConnell was right in 2016? I don't know how that would implicitly in any way indicate Mitch McConnell was right. Um, just as an aside, that slogan of do your job back in 2016, it turned out I was actually the author of that. I had no idea. I did an interview back home here and they said, well, what do you have to say? I said, well, we should do our job. And that became like the whole advertising campaign. And I asked if I got, um, what are the royalties? Yeah, no royalties for that. <laughs> but um, look, in the minds of, if you're a Senate Democrat who felt that the Supreme Court was um, inalterably um, 
changed by what Mitch McConnell did. My job is to try to have a Supreme Court that works, that's proper, and that we are willing to, um, I'm, I'm willing to do my job and my job right now is to make sure that there's actually a process that's treated fairly by both sides. Uh, go ahead, introduce yourself. And... Hi, I'm Blake Ziegler. I'm a sophomore in the Tocqueville program, majoring in political science and philosophy. And my question kind of regards the treatment of religion to Judge Barrett and the difference it has to Justice Ginsburg, because Ginsburg was routinely praised for how she related her Jewish faith to her role as a justice, saying that Judaism's emphasis on social justice was particularly swaying to her. Um, but with Justice Barrett, we're seeing routine criticisms about the role of Catholicism in our life. And so I was wondering if you had any comments about kind of the differences between the two. I do. And um, I think that um, there were some, there was, you know, one, one comment in particular during the hearings that, um, that, that was, that should never have been said. Um, but I think that um, you will not be hearing any criticisms of her faith. I mean, she has the right to believe what she believes. Um, you will be hearing discussion of particular subjects like Roe versus Wade, like LGBTQ rights. Um, and it's, it's appropriate that those discussions take place just as a discussion of the Affordable Care Act, which I fought for 10 years to keep alive in vote after vote because 20 million Americans get coverage and people with pre-existing conditions like cancer and heart conditions get coverage for the first time. And so I see that as a moral issue as well. But in regards to um, attacking her faith, uh, I think that uh, there's no desire to do that. I think in your if you watch these hearings, and I have no crystal ball, um, but I don't think you'll see any attack on her faith at all. And so um, some comments that should not have been made in the first round, I don't think will be made in this round. I do think though, in a strange way, and this is not meant politically, I think that, um, I, I think there's a hope with some in, in uh, on the president's side. And I think that they need something like that. They need a religious culture fight right now because they're in trouble electorally. And a big portion of this is they're hoping that this can become, uh, try to start a, a fight so that Catholics in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan look up and say, hey, they're not treating my faith fairly. I don't think you'll see that at all. Uh, Professor Bamberg, Professor Garnett, uh, anything about the... the... And, and I am not, a, I am not a, a constitutional scholar on religious freedom like Professor Garnett. I'm just the guy who had a soda at lunch. So, <laughs> so I, I think uh, Senator Donnelly's predictive judgment is spot on that the Democrats from the Senate Judiciary Committee will be much more disciplined than some of them were last time. Um, I do think it's unavoidable um, in the sense of if one spends any time and one shouldn't on Twitter um, that uh, a lot of the commentary and some of the stuff from activists and so on 
uh, still is trafficking in some of these stereotypes and tropes. And, um, but I do think that, that Senator Donnell is exactly right, that politically it won't make sense um, for the Democrats. You know, if you don't mind, I mean, one, one quick, it's, it's important to distinguish between two different kinds of questions. So it's any judicial nominee has views, experiences, commitments, values. Nobody is a robot. Nobody comes to the court without commitments. Justice Ginsburg had a lot of commitments when she came to the court about a lot of controversial questions. Um, so did Justice Scalia. The two of them were confirmed with over 95 yes votes. So yes, it's not a secret. Um, uh, Judge Barrett was a practicing Catholic. And, um, they're, you know, throughout history been uh, judicial nominees from other religious traditions and so on. It's always appropriate to ask nominees whether or not they understand what the role of a judge is. The role of a judge is to decide legal questions and not religious questions and not moral questions. And judicial nominees say under oath, as Judge Barrett did, that they will do their best, we're all human beings, nobody's perfect, but they'll do their best to decide questions in accord with the law and not in accord with their religion. The problem is there is a tradition in America, and it's a long one, of there being in some quarters a little bit of extra suspicion about Catholics. John Adams had this, it was rampant in the 19th century. There was a sense that we had to be a little worried about Catholic political leaders because they would just do what their priest or their bishop or the Pope in Rome told them to do. A lot of that has been put to the side now, thankfully, uh, but some of it is still alive. And I did detect uh, with regret in the last set of hearings although I agree, I agree again, we won't see as much about this time, that there was kind of a, a suspicion directed at Judge Barrett when she said under oath, yeah, I'm gonna follow the law. We had a senator say, well, I'm not sure I believe you because the dogma is loudly. And that kind of thing shouldn't happen. But that doesn't mean it's not appropriate to ask judicial nominees about whether they understand the appropriate role of the judge. And I, hopefully that line will be observed by everybody this time around. Professor Bamberg, you echoed Professor Garnett's comments in your earlier comments. Anything else to yeah, add? Yeah, um, just one quick point. One of the things that um, some of the media seems to have picked up on is the fact that Judge Barrett co-authored a law review article in her time here um, with one of her law professors. And the, the thrust of the article is that uh, trial judges should refuse themselves in trial judges who are Catholic should refuse themselves from cases in which the death penalty is on the table as a sentence. Um, and so I think, whereas people have tried to cite this article as evidence that, you know, her Catholicism is somehow bound up with her legal philosophy, her judicial philosophy, in fact, this does show a sort of um, cognizance that the role of a judge is different um, and that a person's personal convictions shouldn't come to bear um, in making these sorts of decisions. And so if it's, it's difficult for someone to bracket that off, then they should repeat themselves, in fact, at the trial level. Uh, another question from the student. Yeah. yeah, so Senator Donnelly, you had said how like elections, especially like your election, became less about like you and more about like just Republican versus Democrat. So the vote really just demonstrated how the split among party lines, kind of like the perils of the two-party system. And so like as we become more increasingly polarized, like how do you think it's gonna play into like future elections? And so like how do you think we can like prevent more issues coming along because of like extreme polarization? Oh, I think um hopefully we can start to heal again it's it's about as it as as bad a point as it could be what i didn't mention the first time is that 
right after the um, after Justice Kennedy retired and Judge Kavanaugh was named as the nominee, um, President Trump then came to Indiana either five or six times in the last month and a half before the election. Um, I think it's probably fair to say, Rick, that we had about three presidential trips in 10 years before, before that time. I mean, it was all tied into, we will use this Supreme Court nomination as the Louisville slugger to try to hit Joe on the head and finish him off. And every time he came, we saw our numbers go down a little bit more. Um, and he knew that too. And so, um, you know, originally he was gonna come like once or twice and he came again, and then he came again, and then he came again. But he wasn't going to Indianapolis. He was going to Fort Wayne and Evansville and Terre Haute and all of the um, outlying places where he knew that he could really drive the numbers. And so um, I've always felt, and you know, I don't have the ultimate knowledge of how it was all planned out, but I've always felt that uh, Justice Kennedy's retirement at that particular time was in no way, shape or form coincidental. I mean, I thought that was an election strategy designed to win some Senate seats and that they followed up on that strategy. And so you have the Supreme Court nomination being explicitly used as, a, as help for election assistance and also as a way on both sides on this where I can't get my way on legislation. And so I'm hoping I can get a majority in the Supreme Court and legislators have to work and compromise and do all of those things like the, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, for instance. Um, you know, I've been involved in vote, I was involved in vote after vote where it survived by like three votes here, one vote here, that kind of thing. But the legislature was working its way and making decisions and making choices on all of these things. And then like every other year, it seemed, we'd have a vote on another part of the Affordable Care Act brought by, um, a legal interest group. They have these fiery legal interest groups on both sides trying to wipe it out. And so here the legislature has worked its will time after time after time. And it's like, well, it's not going to mean anything if the court, if the court does this. And so that's why um, so much is hanging on each of these um, court nominations. Now, as, as Professor Garnett said, it used to not be so much the pinnacle of every decision, the legislature would make a decision and it's determined whether it's constitutional or not. But it's like we're in about our fourth or fifth iteration. And actually one of the main concerns about, about Judge Barrett, or I shouldn't say concerns, but one of the worries is it's about a week after the election, the Supreme Court has another case before it on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And, and um, the, the mix from the last time is different than this time. And so there's, there's concern over, hey, will, you know, people will say it's a political way to put it, but I don't think so. Will, will the mom from here in South Bend who had triplets, um, 
when she, when they were six, she was six months pregnant and had triplets. And they were in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit at St. Joe Memorial for three months. And so they came out after nine months, which is usually the normal term for pregnancy. Um, but they had been actually in the NICU for three months. Because of the Affordable Care Act, when, when they walked out, their family had a medical bill of $5 million. But because the Affordable Care Act said, there's no lifetime caps, which means like when you hit 500,000 on your medical bills, the insurance company won't cover it anymore. That's what used to be called lifetime caps. So this was a $5 million bill, but they were still okay financially. They didn't lose their house, they didn't lose their car, and they got three triplets, which was pretty awesome. And so that is why um, this has become such a big thing, is, is if you can't win in the legislature, then you, then you go to the Supreme Court. Can I, can I piggyback on the question from the student about uh, polarization in the court? Uh, what happens uh, in terms of polarization or legitimacy of this appointment if for whatever reason, uh, the vote on, the, on the, the confirmation vote is delayed till after the election. And let's say uh, uh, um, candidate Biden wins. So now we're, we're at the end of November, Joe Biden has won the election. Uh, the vote takes place then. Um, Professor Donnelly, maybe you can comment. I, I've that, talked too much. I'll let those two go first. Would it, would it raise questions about the legitimacy? Mm -hmm. Would it change the views of senators? Might they vote differently, especially Republicans, if Trump loses? Uh, any of the panelists? Well, a couple of things. I mean, there, um, there's, there is historical precedent for nominees who were put up during an election year to be confirmed during the lame duck session. It's politically controversial when that happens, uh, but it has happened. And, it seems like as sure as the sun rises in the east, that one side would say it was fine and one side would say it was a bummer. Um, legally, it's fine. Right? Just on the, on the polarization point, if I might, just really quickly, it's worth remembering, um, this is kind of my stump speech, so I apologize when I'm talking to my law students, that the justices who are farthest apart on the court, so right now that's Thomas and Sotomayor, they agree 55% of the time. So the vast majority of the court's cases are technical kind of smart lawyer stuff. They're not 5-4 right-left. They don't have to do with abortion or religion or the death penalty. They have to do with how to interpret Section 123 of the 456 Act. And um, if you add up the cases where it's unanimous 8-0 or 7-2, you start getting up around 75% of the cases. So I say that not because I want to downplay the seriousness of the cases where there is disagreement. There are some. Um, but I do think as citizens, especially as political science students, you do want to be aware that most of what the court does is kind of technical questions about which reasonable people of goodwill agree. And you have like Scalia and Ginsburg on one side against, you know, Thomas and Kagan on the other. Um, it, it isn't all just red, blue, which sometimes I think the court reporters have an interest in making you think that's what's going on, which might make you think the court is more polarized than it is. I had the privilege of working at the court for a year. And um, what I observed, generally speaking, was 
immense respect and collegiality among the justices, even the ones who, you know, you probably read in the papers, uh, are at each other's throats sometimes. You know, Scalia and Ginsburg is one example, but there were, there were others. So polarization is a reality, but you might take some comfort in knowing that a lot of times they're just smart lawyers doing their work. That's maybe another student question. Hi, uh, I'm Fritz. I'm a senior political science major. Um, I'm curious, I think, for all the panelists, but especially for Senator Donnelly. Um, I really appreciate your like principled approach to like confirming Gorsuch, and like also having the same attitudes towards Mike Garland um, and other candidates. I'm wondering, however, I think in the recent even couple weeks, we've seen a shift from the idea that like Republicans, if they're going to continue engaging in like these kind of in what a lot of people would say would be like bad faith politics around this stuff, Democrats should also like stoop to that level and like create a fight there. And I think that idea has moved from like an activist idea to more of like an establishment um, belief. And I'm curious if your thinking has changed since you nominated or since you voted for Gorsuch and like your stance on things like court packing or just like more overtly political ways to counter Republican efforts. I think, um, and, and this, you know, I keep saying that, but it isn't, um, this isn't it politically, but I think that the one you don't hear saying these things is Joe Biden. And that's because he is hoping that we can have a reset back to normal, that if we get in a position where there's a new administration, Maybe folks will, like the spell is broken, so to speak, that folks will be more willing to talk. And so I think that that first six months or the first year, say if it's a, if it's a, a Biden administration, I think if it's a, you know, if the president's reelected, I think we know what to expect. Um, but if uh, Vice President Biden wins, I think that there's a hope that we look up in six months to a year and maybe we see a Senate that operates in a different way because there's no guarantees and there's no guarantees of how it will go. But my expectation is that if there'll be an effort to do that, but if everything remains so, so broken a year later, like a, for instance, say if the Republicans continue to control the Senate. Um, and all of a sudden you start seeing again, no hearings for judges, no hearings for a Supreme Court justice. I think that's when you would see things change. Senator Donnelly, let me press you a little bit on this because if, if I think we'd all like to see a return to normalcy, uh, or at least many of us were, why, if, if uh, Vice President Biden really wanted that, why wouldn't he take court packing off the table? Why do you want to talk about court packing in the middle of an election? I don't think you do. Because as he said, if I start talking about this, it will be used as a political weapon against me by, by everybody. And so I'm in the process of trying to unify people as opposed to dividing people. And so that is not a subject that, uh, uh, it, it's one of those things like, uh, you know, the old joke about, um, did you beat your brother Friday or did you beat him on Saturday? Um, you know, there's no win on that question. But if he wanted a return to normalcy, it would be, it's not normal to pack the court. He's, by not taking it off the table, he seems to be 
holding out as a possibility. Well, actually, by, you know, in my judgment, by not taking it off the table, it's, it's not that he's actually not taking it off the table. He's just not talking about it and doesn't care to talk about it and probably doesn't plan to talk about it. And so um, I think he sees it as no matter what he would say on it, it would, uh, it would be a loser. And so he's in the business of trying to win this election right now. He's always been very, very honest with us. And he's, uh, you know, I just, I just don't think, I think he wants to focus on the issues at hand, the issues of the virus, the issues of competence and leadership. And so I think that's where he, he doesn't want to take the conversation elsewhere right now. This is kind of a, so my name is John Battle. I am a sophomore. I like your shorts, man. <laughs> it's a bold decision, I know. <laughs> um, I'm a sophomore and majoring in PLS, and I'm a fellow of the TOEFL program here. Um, I actually have a question about core packing, so I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so what do you think about the threat of core packing in the more abstract effect that it would have on partisanship um, in this upcoming election? And then the more material impact that it would have on court proceedings. Um, this is a question for all the panelists. Thank you. Why don't we uh, let Professor Bamberg and Professor Garnett, uh, any thoughts about uh, court packing? Sure. Um, so your question was both with respect to future cases and then what was the first part of the question? Yes, yeah, so more like the abstract effect on the oh. about the, the dual understandings of the role of the court, the dual understandings of the confirmation process even. Um, even though adding more justice is, is perfectly constitutional, though the, the Congress does have the constitutional power to do that, it sort of, it would double down, and particularly in this political moment, it would double down on the court as a political institution, just like all the others, as policymakers, as legislators only in robes that we have to maintain the balance between, you know, now we're saying explicitly conservative justices and liberal justices. Um, and so while many of us are at that kind of jaded point of, of thinking about the court in these terms already, um, to pack the court kind of doubles down on it. And I think it also misses the point that Professor Garnett was, was just saying that in the vast majority of cases, um, the ones that don't have to do with these culture war issues, the justices do agree with each other and they cross these these ideological lines. So in the long term, I, I do think that maybe we, we should think about the, the court as an institution, um, maybe ways to um, counteract what seems to be this polarization. Um, I'm not sure court packing is the best way to do that for the long term. You know, um, uh, after the, so the election of 1800, at least in my judgment, was the most polarized and partisan and rhetorically fraught and dangerous election um, we ever had. If you think about it, it was sort of the first time in modern history that one regime had peaceably handed over control to a completely, or what some thought was a completely different one. So things were messy in 1800, right? And one of the first things that um, the uh, Democratic Republicans, Thomas Jefferson's party did after 1800 was not only did they talk about packing the court and messing with the numbers, they simply defunded the court and canceled its entire term. So you might think that messing around with court packing is kind of small beer compared to that. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, let's see, uh, one more student question here and then maybe we'll go to an online question. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah my, my name is Marty White, I'm a junior studying policy at UConn. Uh, could you talk at length about, oh, sorry. 
You've each talked at length about politicization of the court and how so the Supreme Court has become an arbiter on culture war issues. Uh, this is in part because of the 14th Amendment and the supposed substantive due process clause. Um, Judge Barrett suggests that this may have been overextended. Um, do you believe the court has the authority under the 14th Amendment to protect rights like gay marriage or abortion that haven't been specifically enumerated by the Constitution? And where do you draw the line on this? And to those of you who know Judge Barrett, um, like know about her jurisprudence, where do you think she would fall on this issue? Maybe Professor Garnett, you'd probably be- Well, sure. So, um, let's separate two questions. So one is, you know, obviously the 14th Amendment is added to the Constitution after the Civil War and it gives the Supreme Court more questions to answer. So for the you know, first uh, part of our country's history, uh, the Supreme Court had very little to say about state legislation. And the reality was that state legislation was what controlled most of our lives. After the 14th Amendment was enacted, and then from that time up till today, obviously the, the 14th Amendment gave the Supreme Court a lot more authority to evaluate what state and local legislators are doing. Um, everybody agrees that the 14th Amendment is a thing, and therefore that the Supreme Court has a role in making sure that the uh, rights that are guaranteed by the federal constitution are respected by state and local governments. There is, as the questioner mentioned, some debate about how you figure out which rights are covered by the federal constitution. Does it have to be the, only the ones that are written in the Bill of Rights? Can there be some unenumerated rights? If there are some un unenumerated rights, say abortion, how do we decide which ones are protected? Um, that's a really interesting interpretive question. My sense from what Judge Barrett has said is that like her former boss, Justice Scalia, she thinks judges should be relatively restrained about identifying rights that aren't written in the text of the Constitution. But you want to distinguish between that question and a related one, which I think Senator Donnelly touched on when he was talking about compromise in terms of crafting the Affordable Care Act. This is just the issue of deference on close questions. So you can imagine the judge thinking, of course, it is the role of the Supreme Court to protect the fundamental rights that say are enumerated in the First Amendment, like the freedom of religion, which you know is kind of my thing. You can believe that strongly. There is a role for the court in policing that. And at the same time, think that when it comes to close questions of cost-benefit analysis, of legislative compromise, of weighing competing interests, the courts should be deferential. I think the word that Professor Bambrick used was humble. So I think you can combine those two things. And I think sometimes um, in our public debate, we focus only on that first question. Right? Is there a role for the court in protecting rights? Yes. How should the court go about exercising that role? My own view is that the court should be reasonably deferential and reasonably respectful of the compromises that legislators hammer out. And Please. Uh, just quickly, I think one other thing I've seen in the news coverage is um, an attempt to put Judge Barrett closer to Clarence Thomas on the question of stare decisis, so um, this question of precedent and the extent to which she would feel bound to follow precedent. Um, the idea being that if you're a really strict originalist, you're going to want to toe the original line, originalist line all the way, and even if that means abandoning precedent. But I actually, my own understanding, apart from this coverage I've seen, is that she's much closer to Justice Scalia on this, that she's a sort of what Scalia would a faint-hearted originalist and recognizes that um, there are certain reliance interests is the technical term. Um, in other words, that people come to rely on the law as it has been practiced. Um, they come to rely on precedent as it has existed for a time. 
And so um, while a person does want to be open to overturning bad precedent, there's some value in consistency and stability um, and appreciating the law for its lived experience in the daily lives of people. Um, and so to the extent that Judge Barrett does appreciate this value of reliance interests, I think um, she would be deferential in the way that Professor Garnett is, is speaking, at least in general. Okay, uh, Professor Rodriguez, please, question. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll play the student here. I had a question about the, the Affordable Care Act that uh, um, Senator Giovanni mentioned, and, and it goes a little bit to what Professor uh, Bamberg just mentioned about precedent. So, um, as you mentioned, um, uh, uh, Judge Barrett has argued that um, an originalist has to take precedent into consideration, and that's important. Um, now, how would an originalist look at the ACA, and how, I mean, I think that's what a lot of Democrats have been saying. Well, if, if she, she's put on the court, ACA is going to be torn apart, and this is a real problem. But how do we, what would originally say about that? And, and uh, I know the exemption or the penalties, and there were some questions about that. I was just wondering if you both of you, Professor, uh, can, can mention that as well. Well, I, I, you know, the person who was involved in crafting um, the legislation is here, so we'll know better than I do. But I do, in case you don't already know this, I'm sorry if you do. Its issues may be reflective of my crafting ability. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to appreciate that the question that's before the court in this upcoming Affordable Care Act actually has nothing to do with the originalism debate. Um, the question that's coming up now is uh, about a technical, really interesting, if you're a geek like me, you think it's interesting, question of severability. And that is whether if Congress has given up on one part of the act, namely the insurance purchase mandate that the previous case had been about, Congress is, Congress X'd that out under the, under the Republicans. Then the question is, well, can the rest of the law stand, including some things that are politically pretty popular? And this is, I think, one of the things that uh, uh, some of the Democrats are really trying to emphasize. But in my own opinion, they're kind of maybe creating an issue where it's not there because at least among legal experts, the smart money says that this latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act is an 8-0 loser, and if Barrett comes on, then it's a 9-0 loser. Um, she has declaimed herself on the question about Congress's power to create the um, insurance purchase mandate in the original legislation. That's what the court decided back in 2012, and she thought Chief Justice Roberts's opinion wasn't particularly persuasive. Um, I'm one of those who thinks that Congress clearly did have the power to enact the insurance coverage mandate, just not for the reasons that Chief Justice Roberts said. But whatever Justice Barrett said about that earlier case in no way commits her to this latest challenge against the court, uh, sorry, against the legislation, which again, I think most people think is kind of squirrely. And by most, I know like right-wing law professors and they think it's a kind of weird theory. So I think the pre-existing conditions and other features of the Affordable Care Act that people have come to like are, are pretty safe. That's my, that's my guess. If I could just say, when you look back at um, Justice Roberts, um, in effect being the deciding vote to, to save the AC because he called it a tax. And, and um, I think what you saw there was what Professor Garnett was talking about, which is, you know, there's argue, arguments about originalism in this theory and that theory and this theory. Um, I think Justice Roberts said the Supreme Court also, in, in effect, without saying it, we have an obligation to try to make it so these people in our country can still get that coverage. So that the legislature that decided this was going to be the law of the land 
that our job isn't to sit here on this one and do theory and say, hey, we're sorry that healthcare coverage was lost. Um, it may not have been the most artful decision. It may not have been the most um, legally clean decision, but I think his goal was, how do I make it so that this can continue while still protecting the court? Senator, even just like a friendly amendment to that, I would have thought that Roberts would tell himself a story that would be slightly different to be not so much that I want to preserve the policy outcome, but more I want to preserve the court's role as kind of a secondary body in making the call. Right. Right. Well, you just mentioned originalism, and, and that's obviously going to be a prominent feature of our of the confirmation uh, battle. Um, let me start with Senator Donnelly, but then uh, ask the, our professors to chime in too. Uh, is it legitimate for a senator to say, um, uh, I think you have the right judicial temperament, you clearly have the qualifications, but I, I'm, I think you're wrong in terms of your judicial philosophy, and therefore I'm voting against you, whether because you're originalist or because you're not an originalist. Uh, is judicial philosophy itself a legitimate uh, subject matter by which a senator could vote to confirm or not? Well, if you feel they're going to make unconstitutional decisions, then you would vote against them. Um, you know, I, my test was always, um, here I'm going to be like, was oh, it Rick Perry when he said I have a three-part test? <laughs> so I'll tell you I have a two-part test, and if I come up with a third, that's a bonus. Um, was always to look and go, um, does that person have the legal skills and capability to be a justice? Have they shown they have that talent? Um, number two is, do they have the appropriate judicial temperament, which is um, that they're measured, they're responsible, they, um, they, can give clear, crisp arguments, they can do all of these things, um, that when they're in a hearing, they're not screaming at the senators, that uh, they can handle themselves properly. And then the third is that they're not political. You can have a view on an issue, but that's your view. It doesn't mean that, that you're a Republican or a Democrat, it just means you believe that that's your view. Um, and so I always brought those um, into the equation. And um, if, if I thought that a justice or a judge candidate was going to clearly time after time after time make unconstitutional decisions, I couldn't vote for them. Um, I'm trying to think of a counterfactual. So your question is, if a judge is a self-proclaimed originalist, um, would that be grounds potentially? Or, or an anti-originalist for that matter, but right, it's just but judicial it, philosophy itself. Is that a... Right. a, a fair game for the deciding matter of a, a confirmation. Vote. Right. My, my issue is that I'm not sure that there are many other um, as philosophies that are as systematic as originalism is. Um, more liberal-leaning jurists have not really come up with a, an analog on the, the other side, so to speak. Um, although it is worth noting that um, you know, there are some liberal law professors who, who are over yourself with individuals too, but all of that is to say, I, I think I would I would say similar to what Senator Donnelly just said. If if a senator was convinced that this would necessarily lead to unconstitutional decisions, then that would probably be grounds. Um, but just on the basis of this interpretive philosophy, which 
all things being equal, for her to call herself an originalist um, makes her more transparent than I think some of her, her colleagues might be who can't necessarily name their legal philosophy as clearly as she does. Okay. Yeah, um, part of me wants to say that if the court had the relatively um, shrunken role that in my dream world the court would have, then I would think you could say things like, look, it's about qualifications and temperament and not about judicial philosophy. Because one might think, you know, judicial philosophy doesn't make that much of a difference when you're trying to resolve a circuit split about section 456 of the 789. But in the world that we have now, where the court is deciding matters, where differences in philosophy can make, can lead to different outcomes on questions that people care about, then I think it is appropriate, or to use your word, legitimate. My only request would be that senators will can it. Um, so I, I would much prefer to have um, a senator say, look, here's the deal. <laughs> um, you were nominated by the other side. Your judicial philosophy is one that I don't subscribe to. It leads to results that I don't like. I'm, I'm going to vote against you for that reason. And for us to really resist on both sides the temptation to think, well, since we can't say that, we better dig up some personal scandal. Candor, candor is much better than scandal. And I would tell you that, um, you know, if if there was a candidate before me, and I asked them, you know, for instance, about the Affordable Care Act, I believe it's constitutional. They said, you know, my judicial philosophy is that I don't see anywhere in the Constitution where, where that's part of it. And so I don't see where, uh, where I would vote for something like that. I, I mean, that's not how those hearings, that's not how those meetings ever go. Usually in the meeting they go, that subject may come up, so I can't discuss this with you. And then you go, well, would you like a muffin? <laughs> uh, but, but if they ever said, you know, I don't see that that's covered, I would have to vote no, because I think it's constitutional. I think it's critical to the people of this country. And you may be the most wonderful person in the world, but I can't vote for you because I think that you're going to um, uh, take unconstitutional steps that take rights away from people. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to thank first and foremost uh, the students here. Thank you for sharing your class, Professor Rodriguez, uh, for, uh, Professor Bamberg, Professor Garnett, and Senator Donnelly. We put this together at the last second, so thank you very much. You. Uh, and speaking on behalf of the Constitutional Studies Program, uh, I hope Professor uh, Barrett, Judge Barrett, uh, is subject to as civil and pleasant.